Some members of the largest religion in the world, 2.4 billion people strong, believe that one of their most sacred holidays is under concerted and sustained attack and that their enemies seek nothing less than the total destruction of their faith. I'm talking about Christians and Christmas and how a very vocal group of Americans insists that there is a nefarious plot to destroy one of the two most important days of the year for them, despite the fact that it has not always been celebrated on December 25th, and that it's become more of a day to celebrate the other dominant religion in the United States, consumer capitalism, than the birth of their savior. Common wisdom says there's safety in numbers, but apparently 2.4 billion is just not a safe enough number for them. And who's to blame depends a little bit on who's complaining. It's the communists, or the Seventh-day Adventists, or Jehovah's Witnesses, or Radical Baptists, or Puritans, or Jews, or Muslims, or atheists, or black people, or Nazis, or maybe a combination of all or some of these groups. Or maybe it's the work of shape-shifting interdimensional cannibal lizards. <laughs> I'm just kidding. Or am I? You leave the world behind and enter a large chamber, filled with boxes and crates as far as the eye can see. Welcome to The Conspiracy Clearinghouse. The podcast that takes a rather skeptical look at conspiracies and mysteries. Each episode will examine various conspiracy theories, most of which are not true, a few of which might be a little bit true, and even a couple that turned out, in fact, to be true. There are many boxes in the clearinghouse, and along the way, we'll look at some mysteries and hoaxes as well. We dare to look behind the curtain that's behind the curtain. I'm your host, Derek DeWitt. Welcome to the Conspiracy Clearinghouse. Jingle Hells, The War on Christmas, Winter Wonderland. In the United States and many other Western countries, Christmas is the celebration of the birth of Jesus Christ, and the big day is either December 25th or, for some places, the evening before December 24th. This isn't, however, true for Orthodox Christians who celebrate around January 6th or 7th on what is sometimes known elsewhere as Three Kings Day and also as Epiphany, which in the Catholic Church is the day that it was revealed that Jesus is actually an incarnation of God himself and also the date of the baptism of Jesus. This is where the 12 days of Christmas comes from. You either start on December 25th or 26th, depending on who you are, and count 12 days. This is actually kind of how the whole thing started. It was introduced in various parts of the world with Christians in the late 4th century, and usually Epiphany was chosen as the big day to celebrate Jesus. Now, in the Roman calendar, the winter solstice was December 25th, and St. Augustine thought this would be a really good day to have the Jesus Festival because he liked the symbolism of the shortest day of the year, the one with the least light, being the same day that God decided to bestow his light upon mankind, and then from there the days start getting longer, meaning there's more and more light each day. The winter solstice has long been important to many, many cultures. Jewish Passover occurs somewhere around there, alternating because they use a lunar calendar from late November to the middle of December. 
The Iranian festival of Yalda, which marks the longest and darkest night of the year, happens right around them. Islamic holidays also use a lunar calendar, and so they tend to drift against the Gregorian calendar. But sometimes Ramadan falls in December, and sometimes so does the birth of the Prophet. The Vinok people in northern Caucasus mark December 25th as Malk, the birth of the sun. The Roman Sol Invictus cult also marked December 25th as the sun god's birthday. Germanic pagans celebrated Yule right around then. Hindus celebrate Panchaganapati, which is a five-day festival honoring the elephant-headed god Ganesh, which ends on December 25th. Buddhists celebrate Bodhi Day, the day the Buddha achieved enlightenment around December 8th, which is not Christmas, but is certainly within the Advent season. Kwanzaa, is celebrated from December 26th to January 1st. This was created in 1966 in California by Ron Karenga of Maryland, who changed his name to Maulana Karenga. After the Watts riots, he decided it was time to give African Americans something for themselves instead of just being uneasily semi-integrated into the dominant white society. The name Kwanzaa comes from the Swahili phrase Matunda Ya Kwanzaa, which means first fruits of the harvest. So Kwanzaa is a time of harvest and sharing the good things that the world is giving you. And Karenga added a second A at the end, so the word would have seven letters. This is a number that has long been associated with hidden mystical wisdom. He intended his new holiday to be very much for black people in America, but as an addition to whatever holiday celebrations they usually took part in, not as a replacement. It spread among the black community from the West Coast throughout the country and eventually even went outside the United States, being celebrated in some African nations today. So this is all the stuff that happens around the winter solstice. It was thought that maybe including all of these traditions into a single phrase might be better than just ramming Christmas, which is mainly a Catholic and Protestant Christian holiday, down everybody's throats. After all, why not acknowledge everybody in a society that is multicultural? And so people started to use the term Happy Holidays instead of Merry Christmas. Jolly old old St. Nicholas. There are plenty of Christmas traditions around the world that would seem mighty strange to many Americans. People in Caracas, Venezuela, go to an early morning mass and mass on roller skates. We're talking about thousands of people roller skating to church. Ukrainians use spider webs as decorations. In Germany, they put a glass pickle ornament on their trees and then hunt for it. In Norway... You hide your brooms at Christmas so witches can't use them to fly around. In Catalonia in Spain, children beat a Christmas log with a stick until it poops candy, nuts, and fruit. Really. In Austria, a terrifying horned demon named Krampus wanders around with chains in a bucket to cart bad children off to hell. And here in the Czech Republic, Czechs starve themselves all day until somebody hallucinates a golden pig, and then, and only then, can they eat. And for the Czechs and Slovaks, it's baby Jesus who brings the presents, not Santa Claus. In Japan, people flock to KFC. And if you don't pre-order your Christmas meal, you're probably going to have to eat something else. This was the brainchild of Takeshi Okawara, who was manager of the very first KFC in Japan, and who later would become CEO of KFC Japan. In 1970, he had the idea of selling a Christmas party bucket. It became rather popular, and the trend went national in 1974. 
For many Japanese people, this was the first time they'd ever had American-style fried chicken, the first time they'd ever had anything like fast food, and it was also their first encounter with any of this Christmas stuff, since Christmas is not really a part of Japanese tradition, and Japan only has maybe 1% or 2% of the populace identifying themselves as Christians. So the two, Christmas and chicken, became linked in their minds. KFC shops would dress up Colonel Sanders in Santa Claus clothes, and since Japan didn't have a tradition of Santa Claus, they thought that Santa Claus and Colonel Sanders were one and the same person. Many Japanese people today still do. Santa Claus, Father Christmas, Kris Kringle, or Saint Nick. Whatever you call him, he's the bearded old white fat guy in a red and white suit that brings gifts and then consumes the cookies and milk kids leave out for him. Where the heck did this figure come from? A lot of it comes from St. Nicholas, who's an actual Catholic saint. He was born Nicholas of Mira, also sometimes known as Nicholas of Bari, in the 4th century CE. He was a Greek by lineage, born in southern Turkey, and he may have participated in the first council of Nicaea. There are several tales and miracles associated with him, including maybe being defrocked when he slapped a heretic who was preaching that Jesus was not as powerful as God, chopping down a demon-infested tree, and resurrecting three children who'd been murdered and pickled in brine by a butcher to be sold as pork. His relics are said to exude a mysterious substance called manna. He is now the patron saint of sailors, merchants, archers, repentant thieves, prostitutes, children, brewers, pawnbrokers, unmarried people, and students. I don't know. With a list like that, he kind of sounds like a guy you might want to spend some time hanging out with. Sounds like he might be a lot of fun. Stories about St. Nicholas traveled far and wide in Christendom, getting adapted to each place where they landed. In northern Germany, ancient stories associated with the midwinter god Woden kind of got blended into the mix, including a tradition that says that in winter, Woden leads the wild hunt, which is a sort of a spectral hunt that flies across the night sky. Fairy Fairy Tale tale of New York. York. The poem, A Visit from St. Nicholas, was published in America anonymously in 1823, but then later claimed by New Yorker Clement Clark Moore, though some people think it was really written by another New Yorker named Henry Livingston Jr. Many of the trappings of modern Christmas come from that poem, which was hugely popular in the U.S. and also became very popular in Britain. The imagery in the poem built on Dutch traditions of a gift-giving sailor named Sinterklaas, which then got anglicized into Santa Claus somewhere in the 1770s, maybe earlier. Washington Irving, who'd had enough of the usual shenanigans that went on in New England at Christmas time, which included people breaking into other people's homes in order to find and consume their alcohol, lots of sex outside wedlock, which resulted in many post-Christmas shotgun weddings, cross-dressing, and much more. Irving satirized these goings-on and also tried to change attitudes towards this time of the year by focusing on this Santa Claus character and the idea of giving presents to loved ones instead of carousing and basically acting like a bunch of drunken pagans. Cartoonist Thomas Nast, a German-born New Yorker, used this poem as an inspiration for a series of drawings of this gift-giving Santa Claus fellow which he did for Harper's Weekly in the 1850s. And then in 1863, he drew a cover image of Santa wrapped in an American flag holding a puppet named Jeff. 
A drawing he did in 1866 showed Santa Claus living in Santa Clausville, NP, NP meaning North Pole. And then three years later, a guy named George P. Webster wrote a poem called Santa Claus and His Works, specifically saying that Santa Claus does in fact live near the North Pole. So that's where that comes from. Basically, Santa Claus is an American creation, and mainly a New York one at that, that was then exported culturally to Britain. Various other writers and artists have embellished the Santa stories and traditions, including Frank L. Baum with his 1902 The Life and Adventures of Santa Claus. Interestingly, Santa also shows up in one of the later Oz books. Then a series of ads in the 1930s for the Coca-Cola Company, drawn by Haddon Sundblom, an American of Finnish and Swedish background, sort of cemented and codified much of the specifics that we now associate with Santa Claus and Christmas. Sundblom built on previous advertising campaigns by the White Rock Beverages Company, based in New York, that used Santa imagery for mineral water in 1915 and then to promote their new ginger ale in 1923. In 1937, an American actor named Charles W. Howard, who'd been playing Santa Claus in parades and at department stores for a number of years, established the Charles W. Howard Santa School, where would-be Kris Kringles could learn the craft, the oldest school of this type anywhere in the world. By the way, Howard's story is a super interesting one and well worth reading up on. Rudolph the Commie Reindeer in the 20th century, the war on Christmas idea starts, as so many things do, with the extremist, right-wing, very white supremacist, and more than a little anti-Semitic John Birch Society, founded by a rabid anti-communist and candy manufacturer in 1958. His was the company that made Sugar Daddy, Sugar Babies, Junior Mitts, and Pom Poms, and basically he created libertarianism. In 1959, just a year after the founding of the John Birch Society, they issued a pamphlet titled, There Goes Christmas, that said that communist fifth columnists were trying to, quote, take the Christ out of Christmas, which then I guess would have left us with a holiday just called Mus. By the way, Christmas means Christ Mass, or the time that you go to a Mass marking and celebrating Christ. This commie plot was designed to eliminate all traditional Christmas decor and replace it with design elements from the United Nations, which, by the way, was a Jewish-run communist organization bent on creating a world government. Eventually, Christianity as a whole would be entirely eliminated, and the United States would sign over all of their autonomy to the UN world government, becoming atheist commie vassals. The John Birch Society had almost certainly taken some of these ideas for this hysterical tome from Henry Ford's earlier book, The International Jew, which specifically mentions that anti-Christmas sentiment is clear evidence of Jewish, quote, venom, as well as other anti-Semitic writings that insisted that evil Jews were waging a clandestine war against Christianity. Kind of funny, really, since, as the website Rational Wiki points out, many of the most popular Christmas songs still sung today were written by Jewish people. Maybe those Jews just didn't get the memo. In the 1990s, British-born American white nationalist columnist Peter Brimelow, who founded the V-Dare Foundation, resurrected this war on Christmas trope. The V. Dare Foundation takes its name from Virginia Dare, the first English child born in the New World at the Roanoke Colony in 1587, and who maybe was turned into a white doe by an Indian sorcerer. 
So Brimelow opposes, among other things, all forms of immigration, including legal ones, oh the irony, he being born in Britain, in 1999, the VDARE website started running a sort of a competition for people to send in the worst offenders of the war on Christmas, something no one had really noticed happening before. But, you know, now that you mention it, hey, yeah, maybe there, there is, is a war, war on, Christmas. on Christmas. After all, People had started saying happy holidays. Oh, yeah, they claimed they were trying to stop excluding people who didn't celebrate Christmas. But maybe it was really just part of an attempt to get rid of Christmas altogether. The very first year of this contest, top prize was given to HUD, the Housing and Urban Development Department, because they had had a, an office party titled A Celebration of Holiday Traditions. The next year, Amazon took the big prize for putting up Happy Holidays on their website. The Birchers and V-Dare seem to want the whitest of white Christmases, though they seem to have forgotten that the man himself, Jesus Christ, was in fact Jewish. Little, Little Culture, Culture War, War Drummer, Drummer Boy. Boy. Fox News clown Bill O'Reilly then decided he'd take on this drum beat, mentioning in 2004 as part of his Christmas Under Siege broadcast how awful it was that Walmart was using the term Happy Holidays as a greeting, saying that this was political correctness run amok, or maybe it pointed to a larger conspiracy to discourage and eventually eliminate all references to Jesus entirely. This in a country that is 65% avowedly Christian. <clears throat> Not likely. O'Reilly was probably at least partly inspired by his October 2005 interview with John Gibson, who was hawking his book, The War on Christmas, How the Liberal Plot to Ban the Sacred Christian Holiday is Worse Than You Thought. Papa Bear heard that and thought, oh yeah, that's good stuff. I can totally use that. I can simply make saying Merry Christmas a socio-political act and continue to push this us-versus-them narrative that I am finding so much fun-slash-useful-slash-profitable. So the current 21st century hysteria about this non-existent threat to Christianity in a country that's well over 50% Christian can be pretty firmly laid on the shoulders of Bill O'Reilly and his no-spin spin. More and more places were going for a sort of religion-neutral or inclusive way of using the English language, which O'Reilly used as evidence in his theory. Schools went on winter break instead of Christmas break. The ACLU has argued that having Christmas displays paid for with government funds violates the Constitution, though that argument has not really made much headway in the courts. In fact, the Alliance for Defending Freedom, which is a conservative Christian nonprofit, has been very successful in getting court rulings on what's known as accommodationism, which says that government actually can support and even pay for religious things provided it's not singling out one religion over the others and is treating all religions fairly and equally. Which is what you would think saying, quote, happy holidays or season's greetings is also trying to do, but not in the eyes of the poor, downtrodden, 65% Christian portion of the country who just think that even suggesting there's any validity to other religions is somehow a terrible sin. Granted, we're not talking about all Christians here, but we are talking about a very loud minority whose extreme views and lack of tolerance just happens to fit into the Fox News culture wars narrative that they have tried so hard to build and make a reality for so long. 
Despite all the hysteria and feeling like they're somehow under siege, Christians seem to have won some pretty important battles in these culture wars and Christmas. Court cases have ruled that Christmas trees and lights have a secular purpose, as do nativity scenes, though there is some legal confusion as to how to apply an equal playing field to nativity scenes. So sometimes you get some pretty non-traditional nativity scenes that include things like reindeers and elves. And the other side has also scored some victories. In 2002, New York public schools banned all nativity scenes, but allowed other holiday symbols that are less religious, like Christmas trees. Keep in mind, they didn't just ban nativity scenes, they also banned the Jewish menorah and the Muslim crescent. They didn't want any religious symbolism in their schools. However, Fox talking heads continue to hammer away on the war and Christmas topic every year, joined by groups like the American Family Association, the Liberty Council, and the Catholic League. The focus shifted to businesses with calls for boycotts against any retailer that uses Happy Holidays instead of Merry Christmas. This has resulted in many large companies reversing their decisions and starting to use Christmas again, rather shamefully. Companies like Sears, Kmart, Walmart, Target, and The Gap, just to name a few. To their credit, Home Depot did not buckle under pressure and still used non-Christmas exclusive terminology in their stores and advertising despite a massive boycott. Starbucks tried to avoid the whole thing five years ago by simply having their Christmas cups colored red and then putting their logo on it. But pro-Christmas watchers noticed this and then accused the coffee company of, quote, hating Jesus because they didn't put Jesus stuff on their coffee cups. The American Family Association started a rumor saying that the shortcut for writing Christmas, Xmas, was an evil attempt to eliminate the word Christ. Apparently, they are unaware that the X is actually the Greek letter Ki, which is the first letter in Christos, which is the name of Christ, in Greek. And that XMAS has been used to mean Christmas since the 16th century. You can even find it in the 12th century Anglo-Saxon Chronicle. And it is still used today, routinely, by many Orthodox Christians. And then, of course, Donald Trump won the presidency in 2016 and declared that from now on, everyone will be saying Merry Christmas and nothing else, which, of course, didn't work since the president cannot tell companies what they can or cannot say. But his supporters became even more emboldened by his declaration, videoing themselves going into various establishments and smugly shouting, Merry Christmas, in establishments that were opting for season's greetings or happy holidays instead. This behavior is about as unfriendly and unchristmassy as you can get. So there is no modern war on Christmas. It is wholly made up. The funny thing is, though, there have been wars on Christmas in the past. Walking Walking in a Puritan Puritan wonderland. wonderland. So, the Puritans in England executed King Charles I in January of 1649 while his son fled abroad and learned how to drink coffee. Oliver Cromwell was now in charge of the nation at the head of a cranky bunch of extremists. They hated the Pope and anything that smacked at all of Catholicism, including Christmas. Before the big revolution, they'd actually been gaining power in Parliament, and in 1647, they had managed to outlaw Christmas, making the day one of contemplation and fasting instead of feasting. Pro-Christmas people rioted, and there was lots of violence. The city of Canterbury was actually held by the pro-Christmas crowd for a number of weeks, but the Puritans attacked 
and won the day, and Christmas continued to be illegal in Britain until 1660 when Charles II came back into the country. So for 13 years, there was no Christmas in Britain. Now, Puritans who went to the New World colonies also disliked Christmas. In fact, at the very first Christmas in Plymouth in 1620, the Puritans spent the day working on a building. Christmas was outlawed in Boston in 1659 and remained against the law until an English governor came in in 1681. That's 23 years without Christmas. Even as far back as 1776, when the nation declared that they were independent from England, Christmas was not a very widespread celebration. So, interestingly enough, it was actually Christians themselves who outlawed Christmas in both England and what would become the United States. Santa Santa Claus Claus won't won't be coming coming to to town. In fact, all this anti-Christmas sentiment had left a bad taste in people's mouths in both countries. Kind of like a year's old fruitcake. In Britain, Christmas really didn't become a big deal until Queen Victoria's reign. This is mainly from two literary works, the American 1823 poem, A Visit from St. Nicholas, and the 1843 serialized novella by Charles Dickens, A Christmas Carol. Dickens wanted to recast the time as one of, quote, worship and feasting within a context of social reconciliation, partly to promote his book, but partly also to try and change attitudes towards what had become a bit of a downer and a rather unpopular holiday. In much of England, Christmas had become mainly a time of men going house to house demanding food and alcohol, which is a little bit like Easter here in the Czech Republic. In Scotland, Christmas was banned in 1640, with the ban being partly repealed 46 years later, but then reinstated again in 1690, and that ban held for another 22 years. Even after Christmas became an acceptable holiday in Scotland, it was not a day off work until 1958, and still today, some ultra-Calvinist churches just consider it another normal day of the week. In the United States, the Corpse of Christmas Future was revived in New York using misunderstood folklore from English and Dutch traditions. And authorities decided maybe they would try and use the poem and Dickens' novel to try and refocus people on celebrating Christmas again, but in a new way. Massachusetts Puritans banned Christmas, making it punishable with a fine in 1659. They then relaxed it in 1681 to just a disturbing the peace charge. In New York, it was finally okay to celebrate Christmas again in 1856. 1856, keep in mind. However, Christmas was not officially recognized as a holiday by Congress until 1870, after President Ulysses S. Grant put pressure on them to make it a real official holiday. Religious overtones at Christmas really took off in America after World War II. So before, even before World War II, it was not a particularly religious day. After the war, some people noted that church attendance was way up and that decorations and celebrations were becoming more and more Jesus-oriented. Well, what a surprise. They just defeated, arguably, the incarnation of evil Adolf Hitler. Baby, Baby it's, it's cold, cold outside. outside. During the French Revolution at the end of the 18th century, there was a lot of anti-clerical sentiment since they had been a class that had benefited from the previous status quo. And as a result, decorations were banned and Christmas Day was renamed 
Dog Day. Traditional mince pies were also banned, and bakers who had usually made what's known as a traditional Three Kings cake were instructed to rename them either Liberty Cakes or Equality Cakes, taking away the reference to the three wise men who visited the infant Jesus. In the 20th century, most European communist governments had banned overt Christmas celebrations as a religious holdover from the outdated pre-state-sponsored atheist days. In the Soviet Union, one group encouraged people to spit on the crucifix in protest of Christmas and all it stood for. Some Christmas traditions crept back into the culture because people who liked it liked it. Religious people held on to their religions. But a lot of those traditions in former communist European countries ended up getting attached more to New Year's than to Christmas. Again, remember that for the Russian Orthodox Church, Christmas is celebrated January 6th. The Nazis totally stripped all trappings of religion from the holiday, Nazifying carols with new lyrics like one song which was entitled Exalted Night of Clear Stars, which has the line, Verses of stars, light, and an eternal mother suggest a world redeemed through faith in national socialism, not Jesus, unquote. Pretty, pretty explicit there. And then children in Nazi Germany were given gifts like small chocolate tanks, SS soldiers, Luftwaffe planes, and machine guns. And pastries were baked into shapes like wheels, birds, or swastikas. Himmler liked to present people with a highly decorated Yule stick, which he had commissioned and made for him especially by prisoners at the Dachau concentration camp. He thought it was a hoot to give those away as gifts. In communist Cuba, Fidel Castro decided that Santa Claus represented American imperialist ideology and banned Christmas entirely in 1969, hoping people would focus all their energy on the sugar harvest instead of some fat white guy or on Jesus. In 2014, the country of Brunei passed a law banning celebrating Christmas, quote, excessively and openly, with a jail sentence of up to five years for wearing a Christmas hat in public or an otherwise flaunting Christmas. In 2012, in Saudi Arabia, 41 people, quote, plotting to throw a Christmas party were arrested by the religious police. Even though there's more than 1.2 million Christians in the country, the authorities tend to look the other way if they keep their celebrations small and quiet. But 41 people was just too much for the Saudis' liking. There's a whole Christmas gift box of similar tales in the book Christmas in the Crosshairs, 2,000 Years of Denouncing and Defending the World's Most Celebrated Holiday by Jerry Bowler, who writes lots and lots of Christmas books, including a biography of Santa Claus. The 12, the 12 plots, plots of Christmas, or Xmas. There are still some American Christian fundamentalists who believe that all the non-Jesus stuff associated with Christmas is in fact nefarious. Some have noticed that the word Santa is just a misspelling of Satan. Also, they note that this dude can fly, except he only chooses to do so on the evening of the birth of Jesus. That can't possibly be a coincidence. Others go further, claiming that unsettling Christmas traditions around the world, like super scary Krampus, have their roots, in fact, in Satan. They claim that the tradition of Santa, which is now morphed into a big, fat, jolly white guy who likes cookies and milk, actually started off as a demon who ate children until some saint or another made him stop. And then he started leaving gifts for children as a penance for all the children he'd wolfed down in the past. So a contrite demon. 
Remember Elf on a Shelf back in 2005? This was a super popular children's book that spawned like things like this. I always do lots and lots of items for purchase, like a bunch of elf dolls you could buy and actually put on a shelf in your own home. They were supposed to sit there all year long. Well, some folks deep on the internet decided that these dolls were not harmless, but were actually CIA surveillance devices monitoring homes of the unsuspecting for their buying habits and their political views. In 2009, the UN Climate Change Conference shifted dates for their meeting in Denmark to happen between December 7th and 18th. This is just a little too close for Christmas for the taste of Polish economist Tomasz Teluk, who told the Warsaw Daily that the UN had done this on purpose as a direct insult to Christians. Though how having a conference that ends a full week before Christmas itself is an insult is unclear. There's even one about that scourge to cat owners, the poinsettia. The famous Christmas flower actually comes from Mexico, who got their independence from Spain in 1821. Two years later, U.S. President John Quincy Adams appointed the first U.S. ambassador to the new country, a guy named Joel Roberts Poinsett. Poinsett loved plants and flowers, and when he first saw this amazing flame flower in southern Mexico, he sent cuttings of it back to the U.S., He'd first seen them in a nativity scene somewhere in the south. In Spanish, it's known as the flor de noche buena, or the flower of the good night. Well, it became very popular in America, and eventually Poinsett was created with, quote, discovering it, since, you know, he was white. And then it became known outside Mexico as a poinsetta, named after him. Needless to say, Mexicans were not so keen on being told that a plant that they'd been using for generations only mattered when a white person noticed it. Poinsett did a lot of things to kind of irritate the new Mexican government, including setting up several Masonic lodges, lending aid to pro-American politicians and business interests. He also wrote a paper saying that in his opinions, Mexicans certainly could govern themselves, provided, quote, white Creoles were put into the main positions of power. So yeah, a lot of Mexicans didn't really like him, so they coined a new word, also named after him, poinsettismo, to describe American interference in the affairs of Mexico. These are a few of my favorite things. Despite the good intentions of some folks in the 19th century to rehabilitate Christmas, it sure seems like it has, once again, become an orgy of consumerism and spending. Depending on which source you follow, Americans in 2019 spent somewhere between $800 and $1,100 each on Christmas, which adds up to well over a trillion dollars being spent in just over one month. Even conspiracy theories themselves are being commoditized. For example, late last year, a series of conspiracy-themed ornaments started showing up for sale, and one of the most popular ones was one of Jeffrey Epstein with a caption that read, This ornament didn't hang itself. However, there's one Christmas conspiracy I quite like. It's a movement started 14 years ago called the Advent Conspiracy, which tries to sort of counterbalance this shopping consumerist frenzy. It was founded by progressive multidisciplined pastors Greg Holder, Chris Say, and Rick McKinley. They have four main principles, worship more, spend less, give more, and love more. Pretty self-explanatory stuff, really. And they have accomplished some real-world good. 
In their very first year, they started working with Living Water International, and they built 13 freshwater wells in Liberia and one high-capacity well in Nicaragua. Getting clean water to communities that lack this essential resource continues to be an important part of the movement. It's pretty clever of them to use the word conspiracy for something that's actually worthwhile. Perhaps it will attract people and get them to reconsider how they behave and what they spend their time and money on this holiday season. In the meantime, choose your holiday battles carefully. If Uncle Joe starts going on about shape-shifting reptilians, maybe just change the topic instead of engaging. Do your part to make sure what is sure to be a weird and stressful holiday season a little bit better for everybody. Thank you for visiting The Conspiracy Clearinghouse. We're closing now, but we'll open another crate in the next episode. Until then, thank you for listening.